Hey guys, welcome back to episode 5 of Creme de la Crime podcast. This week on the list is the state of California. According to worldpopulationreview.com, California has the highest number of unsolved disappearances out of all the states with 2,133 unsolved cases. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So let's not waste any more time. Grab your wine and let's dive in to a little California true crime. The first case that I want to share with you guys today is actually a cold case, and you may have heard of it, maybe you haven't, but her name is Robin Ann Graham. Robin Graham was born on June 22, 1952, in Los Angeles, California. She was the daughter of Marvin and Beverly Graham and had recently graduated from John Marshall High School in June of 1970. She grew up on Lemoyne Street in the Echo Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. At the time of her disappearance, she was attending Pierce College in Woodland Hills as an art student and also worked part-time at Pier 1 Imports in Hollywood. On November 14, 1970, Robin decided to leave her car at Pier 1 Imports when she got off work. She then left in her boyfriend's car to spend the night out with a few of their friends. Now, I didn't see her boyfriend's actual name listed anywhere, but this was also 50 years ago, and he was her high school boyfriend, and he ended up having no connection to her disappearance anyway, so his name really isn't relevant. Later that night, after dropping off another friend, her boyfriend drove her back to her car, and they parted ways for the night. After getting in her car to go home, Robin only drove a few miles before her car stalled out at approximately 1.45 a.m. At this point, when she breaks down, she's located southbound on the Hollywood Freeway near Santa Monica Boulevard in Los Angeles, California. So this is a main highway. After steering to the side of the road, a California patrol officer saw her, pulled over, and offered to call her a tow truck. There were two male officers in this patrol car. Robin declined their offer, and then she decided to walk to a nearby payphone to call her house and get her parents to come and pick her up. At this point, I'm not sure why these officers wouldn't offer to give her a ride to the payphone. It didn't state how close this payphone was either, But this is on a highway, so I'm assuming she had to at least walk a little ways to get there. But they did not offer to drive her to this phone, and she walked there by herself. They drove off. I can't believe that two male police officers would just leave this girl by herself in the dark on a main highway. Even if she said she was okay, I don't know any men in my life 
that would just drive off and leave a woman in the dark. And it doesn't matter to me that this is the 70s. This is a teenage girl alone at 2 a.m. on a freeway. It's unbelievable to me. So at this point, they drive off. Robin walks to this payphone and she calls her house. It said that her sister answered this phone call. And after she spoke to Robin, she went and woke up her parents and she relayed this message to her parents. The patrol car with these same two officers did another loop and said that they stopped again when they saw that Robin had gotten back to her car. She told the officers she had contacted her parents and that they were on their way to pick her up. So these officers drove off again and left her alone by the side of the road. This is the second loop that these officers have made since she's broken down. So they obviously have nothing going on. They're literally just cruising around. So why they can't stop and at least just park with Robin and her car at this point is seriously beyond me and really pisses me off. So at this point, they've driven off a second time, okay? Robin's sitting with her car by herself. Then these patrol officers do a third loop. So they proceed to drive past for a third time and said that they noticed Robin talking to a man. They said they assumed this man was the family member that she had mentioned calling. The officers said they saw a light blue Corvette that was parked behind her. And when they saw this car, they didn't stop. They just drove off. And this was the last time that Robin was ever seen. An unidentified Caucasian male in his mid-20s was seen talking to her just before she disappeared. He was wearing bell-bottom trousers, a white turtleneck shirt, and was about five foot eight. He was driving a light blue Corvette hardtop somewhere between the year make 1957 and 1960. The original statement given by one of the officers was that Robin appeared to get into this man's car willingly. Later, the officer who made that report was re-questioned and said that he saw her in the presence of this man, but never actually saw them leave together. So, sounds like to me someone's trying to save their ass. Because this girl literally went missing right in front of their faces. When her parents arrived at the location to pick her up, they found her car locked and abandoned on the side of the freeway. Robin didn't leave any form of note for them on where she had gone. This detail is really strange to me as well because she knew her parents were on their way to pick her up, okay? I personally don't believe that she would have just left without leaving something for her parents, right? Because I feel like if you're comfortable enough to call your parents when you've been out, it's 2 a.m., 
and you don't hesitate to call your parents to come pick you up, I feel like she was probably fairly close with her parents. So this kind of makes me wonder if this man used force or maybe even some type of weapon to abduct her. I mean, once he saw the officers drive out of sight, it's 2 a.m. There's probably no one else really on the road at this point. This is in the 70s. As far as I could tell from the research, there was no obvious struggle at her car. So this does make me lean a little more towards this man threatening her with some form of weapon because that would have made her a lot less likely to resist getting in the car with him. And something else I was tossing around, if this man pulled up, he probably pretended to be a good Samaritan, at least to start with. And I'm wondering if he possibly threatened to hurt her parents if she didn't get in the car. Because for me, I'm very close with my family. So if a man said, hey, if you don't get in my car, I'm gonna kill your parents. I'm going to do everything I can to protect my mom, my dad, my brother. So that could also be another way he would have easily been able to get her in his car. Detectives of the LAPD handled Robin's case. They thought her disappearance might possibly be linked to similar cases involving other young women over the previous few years. In November of 1967, West Valley police warned the public of a man who flagged down three separate women saying that he was having car trouble. Once the women pulled over, this man proceeded to assault all of them. The next of these cases was Rose Tashman. Rose was an Israeli-born student at San Fernando Valley State College, and she disappeared in 1969, which was only 18 months before Robin. Rose had a flat tire on the Hollywood freeway only a few miles from the location where Robin broke down. Her car was found abandoned and Rose was found a few hours later strangled and naked dumped in the Hollywood Hills. Months before Robin's disappearance on January 20th of 1970, another young woman named Cindy Lee Mellon also disappeared. Cindy's car was found with a flat tire and she has also never been found. None of the other cases were solved and all the other victims were found dead in the Hollywood Hills. So I have a couple theories about this and I'm going to see what you guys think. So the first theory is I'm not convinced all of these crimes are connected I say that because in 1967, when the three women were separately flagged down and assaulted and later found dead in the Hollywood Hills, to me that case seems different because in those three instances, the man pretended to need help, flagged these women down, got them to pull over, he assaulted them strangled them, and literally threw these women out butt naked like they were trash. Now, the woman named Cindy Lee Mellon, I think it's much more likely that she was 
taken by the same person because her case is literally the exact same as Robin's. All the details are the same. So this man was so calculated. And it could obviously be a Ted Bundy situation where the guy was handsome and charming. And they got in the car with this guy willingly not knowing what he was going to do to them. We really don't know. The second theory that I'm thinking is if these cases did happen to all be connected, right? Then the only way that that would make sense to me is if the 1967 assault and murders were some of his earlier crimes and maybe he was kind of figuring out what he liked because that is a thing. And maybe he figured out that if he could get rid of the bodies and they would never be found, that there would be less heat on him. So to me, that's the only thing that would make sense for all of these to be connected because the 1967 murder seems so different from the 1970 disappearances. So I'm interested to hear you guys' theories on that as well. After the Los Angeles Times did a story on Robin's disappearance, a woman wrote a letter to Robin's parents. She said she had also stalled on the side of the road and a man driving a blue Corvette who claimed to be an off-duty police detective offered her a ride. The woman said she refused his offer, but it's not known if this man is the same person as the man that was last seen with Robin. But a blue Corvette hardtop? That's very specific. So it seems unlikely to me that these were not connected. People have speculated that this could possibly be why Robin would have left with this man willingly. But this theory honestly doesn't make sense to me because Robin had already refused help from other police officers. So why would she suddenly change her mind and just go with someone in a random car, especially without even leaving a note for her parents? I just don't buy it. The woman who had written this letter to her parents later identified Bruce Davis as the man who offered her the ride. If you don't know who Bruce Davis is, he was a high-profile member of the Manson family. It is important to note, however, he did not participate in the August 1969 murder. I did find out, though, that he ended up turning himself in to the police just a few weeks after Robin went missing but it was for something else. He was convicted of two separate counts of murder, including the killing of ranch hand Donald Shea. Bruce was also strongly suspected by authorities to be the Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac Killer stalked Northern California between 1968 and 1970. He also claimed to have killed 37 different victims during this time. He sent taunting letters to the press taking credit for the murders and also hand-drew complicated ciphers that he sent to the police. When one of these messages with 408 symbols was finally decoded, its contents were found to say the following. I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. 
Despite claiming these as thrill kills, the message goes on to explain the string of murders as the act of collecting slaves for the afterlife. The cipher continues saying, The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise. Despite claiming to have committed 37 murders, detectives can only confirm seven victims, two of which actually survived. Eight months before Robin disappeared, Kathleen Johns was driving to San Francisco when the car behind her started flashing its headlights. When she pulled over, a man approached and told her that her back wheel was wobbling furiously. He offered to fix her tire for her, but loosened the tire so that it completely fell off as she attempted to drive away. The man then backed up and offered her a ride to a nearby service station. Since she was with her infant child, she accepted the ride. As he silently drove past the station, she got nervous and started questioning him. She said he stayed silent for a few minutes and then said, Before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. This man drove her around for an hour and a half, taunting her with similar comments like, you know you're going to die. She managed to escape and hide in a field with her baby as he searched for her with a flashlight. And the thought of this is absolutely terrifying to me. She is hiding in a field in the dark with her baby. So all I can think is that you would just be praying that your baby doesn't start crying. He only stopped looking for her because a truck approached the field. Kathleen said she managed to wave down another vehicle, which took her to a nearby police station. While she was waiting to make her report, she glanced up and saw a sketch on the wall of the man that had taken her. It was a wanted poster for the Zodiac Killer. Because of the Zodiac's fame and his crimes being unsolved, various theories have emerged over the decades about who the killer was and who his actual victims were. Bruce Davis was taken into custody on December 2, 1970 and was sentenced to life in prison for the other crimes he had confessed to. Although he has kept a clean record since 1980, the governor has denied all five of his parole appeals. He has always maintained that he is not the Zodiac Killer and it's not known if he has any connection to Robin's disappearance. I do, however, think it's important to note that Robin also disappeared during the full moon, which is when the Zodiac typically like to strike. Now, there's another theory that I want to just pass over quickly because I went, I don't know if you guys ever do this, but I went down a Reddit rabbit hole with this case because there's so many theories about what people think or have come up with that might have happened to Robin. So I wanted to just mention this theory because it doesn't make any sense and I'm going to tell you guys why. There's an entire long thread on Reddit about this case where people are basically saying why they think Ted Bundy might have been 
her abductor and murderer. All the reasons that people give are a far reach, in my opinion, and don't add up at all. There's a lot of holes in the theories, and there are certain cases that might be connected to Robbins that don't fit the timeline. So I'm not even going any further into the Ted Bundy theory because it does not add up. I do not think he had anything to do with Robin's disappearance. So if you guys have read something different and you think that it makes sense or you want to look into it yourself, feel free and you're welcome to DM me what you think. Almost two decades after Robin went missing, A message appeared in the Los Angeles Times classified section in 1987. So this is 17 years later. The message read, Dearest Robin, you ran out of gas on the Hollywood freeway. A man in a Corvette pulled over to help. You have not been seen of since. It's been 17 years, but it's always just yesterday. Still looking for you, the Echo Park Ducks. The letter would have gone unnoticed if it wasn't for WKFI disc jockey Jeff Edwards. He read the cryptic message live on air and expressed that he wondered what it meant. It sounded so romantic, he had said. Soon, letters and calls came into the station making the connection to Robin's case from 17 years ago. Some wondered if the letter was a clue and comparisons were made to the Zodiac's letters to the press. It was found that this was not a clue, but a simple tribute from a 36-year-old local named Al Medrano. Al was surprised by the fuss his classified message had caused, explaining to the Times that he was an old friend of Robin's. The Echo Park Ducks was the name of the group they ran around with when they were young. He made a statement saying, I just wanted to show that she wasn't forgotten. I think... If you've ever known someone, maybe they were close to you, maybe they weren't, but if you've known someone that's disappeared or been murdered or has had a vicious crime committed against them, I can speak from experience and say that it changes everyone around them. When someone that you know or care about goes missing or is murdered, It affects everyone, not just their immediate family. And I think that this guy that was just her good friend from school, all these years later, leaving this letter in the newspaper just goes to show that. You know, it's not only the immediate people you see that are affected. It's everyone that's ever known this person that's affected. I can speak on that because... I had a friend from high school that was abducted. She was missing for months before her body was found. And I actually knew her fairly well and had been around her a lot in school, all throughout school, actually. And I remember her going missing. And even though it's not like we were best friends, it still affected me a lot because knowing someone that this happens to is just such a realization that this really can happen to anybody. And it's really, really scary. To this day, Robin's case remains unsolved, and there are tons of theories surrounding what happened to her. Serial killer theories aside, okay, 
Some think that it might have been a crime of opportunity stranger abduction since she was alone late on the side of a main highway. Robin's case is the ultimate reason CHP's policy for stranded female motorists was changed and now states that an officer is not allowed to leave a female alone at a stranded vehicle on the side of the road. It's really sad that they had to make a law about this, but whatever. Robin's parents are sadly now both deceased and foul play is suspected in Robin's disappearance. Robin Graham was last seen on November 14, 1970 by a Highway California Patrol officer when she was 18 years old. She was standing next to her disabled vehicle on the Hollywood Freeway near Santa Monica Boulevard. Later, the officers noticed a white male around 25 years old with dark hair talking to Robin. A 1957 to 1960 light blue Corvette hardtop was seen parked behind her vehicle at this time. At the time of her disappearance, Robin had brown hair and brown eyes. She was approximately 5 foot 6 and weighed around 125 pounds. She was last seen wearing a red blouse, blue jeans, red clogged shoes, and a dark blue corduroy jacket. She is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Robin Graham, please contact the Los Angeles Police Department at 213-485-5381. Before I end the first case and go to case two, obviously Robin disappeared when she was 18 and that was 52 years ago. So she would be 70 years old today. With all the time that has passed, it's obvious that it's assumed that Robin is no longer alive. But the fact of the matter is, Robin's body has never been found, and her family deserves to lay her to rest. The second case I want to share with you guys is about Michael William Negrete. And his case is a lot shorter than Robin's because there really wasn't any evidence in his case. But I am going to share the actual details of the disappearance and walk through the theories of what people think because his disappearance is really strange. So definitely DM me and give me your feedback after you listen to this episode about what you think happened to Michael. Michael Negrete was born on March 25th, 1981 to Mary and Miguel Negrete. He also has two brothers named Dave and Steve, and he went by the nickname Mike to his friends and family. At the time of his disappearance, Mike was considered a really happy guy. He loved singing jazz, watching The Simpsons, and playing music. He played the trumpet and steel drum with a band called Island Fever and was also known as an avid gamer. Mike was a popular freshman at UCLA on a music scholarship. On December 10, 1999, he attended a party with his friends on the floor he lived on and then he went back to his own dorm room. It's important to note that Mike's dorm and this party both were on the sixth floor this night. 
Him and a friend played video games together for most of the night, wrapping up around 4 a.m. Mike left his apartment sometime after finishing playing the game and before his roommate woke up. The exact time and reason for Mike's departure remains unknown to this day. He left all of his belongings, including his wallet, identification, clothing, and instruments in his room. Mike was reported missing when he couldn't be located. They didn't find anything strange during the initial investigation. He didn't have any known enemies, and there had been no recent significant changes or events in his life. The police did not believe that Mike disappeared voluntarily, though he seemed to have initially left his room by choice. At a loss, the police decided to bring in the bloodhounds. The dogs trace Mike's trail across campus where it abruptly stopped at Sunset Boulevard and Bellagio Street in Los Angeles. No other evidence was located. Where the trace stopped was also located near a bus stop. I think it's important to note that Mike did not have a car on campus, so I would assume he regularly rode the bus. The band Mike played with, called Island Fever, hosted several benefit concerts to raise money for the investigation. Mike's parents hired two private investigators from MSM Investigations as well. The family put up a $100,000 reward for tips that led to Mike's whereabouts. Both private investigators turned up no leads and the reward has never been claimed. The year after Mike's disappearance, the police released a sketch of a man believed to be a witness to Mike leaving the dorm. They emphasized that this man was not considered a suspect or a person of interest in Mike's disappearance. Witnesses stated that this man was white and in his mid-30s. He stood at about 5 foot 8 and had a stocky build. He was wearing a gray jacket with a turquoise design on it, and he was seen in the halls of Mike's dorm around 4.30 a.m. So the police thought maybe he possibly saw or spoke to Mike that night, but unfortunately, no one has ever come forward with this man's identity in more than 20 years since the sketch was originally released. Now, this seems a little strange to me because this is a college dorm. This is a random man in his mid-30s wandering around a college dorm at 4.30 in the morning. And the fact that this was all over the news when Mike disappeared and no one ever came forward and said, hey, you know, I was there, this was going on, I was doing this, whatever. So the fact that this person most likely saw the sketch of themselves and didn't come forward kind of makes it look a little suspicious. So since 1999, no one has ever identified this man and he has never come forward. Mike's brother, though, did end up coming forward in 2013 and he stated that Mike had been going to raves and experimenting with drugs in the months before he disappeared. He decided to come forward in case this information connected pieces of the investigation that were previously thought to be unconnected. This aspect of the case sparked dozens of new theories and did help in shedding more light on Mike's disappearance. I really don't understand this. 
and you guys can let me know how you feel. Mike disappeared in 1999, and I don't know which of his brothers came forward to say this. It did not state specifically, but he waited 14 years to give the police what I would say is a pretty important detail about Mike's life at the time that he disappeared. Knowing that Mike was involved with the drugs would have possibly turned the investigation in a completely different direction because police would have been looking at it from a different aspect. So finding this out 14 years later, sure, people can speculate and come up with theories, but it's been 14 years. There's not really anything you can do with this information now. So it's unbelievable to me that his brother would have waited so long to say this. And I just think that's really weird. But I guess also on the other hand, maybe he wanted to protect Mike. You know, maybe he didn't want him to get just written off as, you know, a druggie, a junkie. Um, Because Mike was a great student. People said he was a great guy. He was fun. He was talented. He did well in school. So maybe he was trying to protect his brother. Um, I, I guess we really have no way of knowing. So as frustrating as it is at this point, because there's nothing for police to go on. There's no evidence, no sign of a struggle. Um, even bringing in the tracking dogs. Once the tracking dogs traced his scent across the campus, it stopped. That's all they ever found of Mike. So there seems to be four main theories when it comes to this case, but each one is deeply contested, okay? So I'm going to go through these, but not one theory is really going to make total sense. So just keep that in the back of your mind. The first theory is that Mike vanished on purpose. There isn't a lot pointing to this because Mike didn't take anything with him. Right. And there's also been no activity on his bank accounts or credit cards since he disappeared. There was seemingly really nothing in Mike's life that would make him want to run away. Authorities didn't find any grudges, no history of mental illness, no debts, or anything like that. But on the other hand, if you think about it, there really doesn't have to be a specific reason for someone to just want to disappear. But honestly, I don't think that is the case in Mike's situation. The second theory is that Mike ran away from his life to commit suicide. Again, there are no signs pointing to him having thoughts of suicide. Mike had no documented history or family history of mental illness. However, It is important to note that a lot of mental illnesses manifest in the late teens and early 20s for men. So it is possible that there was something developing or possibly accelerated by his experimentation with drugs. The third theory is that Mike possibly had some sort of mental break or suffered some sort of head injury that resulted in memory loss. Either one of these could have led to him wandering away from the dorm. It's possible that he got across campus where the bloodhounds tracked his scent and accepted a ride from someone. Los Angeles has a huge community of homeless people, and some people believe that Mike is living among this population to this day. 
Adding in the fact that Mike was experimenting with drugs at his time in college, that could have triggered some sort of shift or amnesia. And of course, last but not least, the theory of murder comes up. Mike's brother believed he was dabbling in drugs when he disappeared, leading some to believe that his disappearance was the result of a drug deal gone bad or some sort of accident. To me, this would also explain why a 30-something-year-old man would be walking through a college dorm at 4 a.m. Out of these four theories, I'm leaning towards one in particular the most, and that's the theory that some form of amnesia was triggered or a mental illness was accelerated by his drug use. It would not surprise me at all if one day Mike was found on the street and he was alive. And honestly, best case scenario, I really hope that he is. Michael Negrete was last seen on December 10th, 1999 at his dorm at UCLA when he was 18 years old. He is a Caucasian male with brown hair and brown eyes. At the time of his disappearance, he was 5 foot 8 and weighed around 130 pounds. He was last seen wearing a blue plaid shirt, khaki shorts, and white shoes. He is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the case of Michael Negrete, please contact the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department at 323-890-5500. That's all I have for this week's episode, but if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please reach out via email creme-de-la-crime-podcast7 at gmail.com, head over to Instagram and follow me at creme-de-la-crime-pod, and don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. (laughs) 